The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You can't always get what you want you can't always get what you want but if you try sometimes well you might find the Rolling Stones, Elton John and Phil Collins are just some of the rock stars who have complained about the Trump campaign using their hit songs at campaign events Neil Young is even suing the campaign over it but Eddie Grant has a more unusual complaint about the use of his signature hit, Electric Avenue. In August, President Trump tweeted an animated ad that shows a high-speed Trump train racing through a town while now President-elect Joe Biden follows along slowly in a railroad handcar. Electric Avenue plays in the background with random odd snippets from Biden. Grant says he never licensed the song to Trump or his campaign, and he's suing for copyright infringement. My guest is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Katten Rosenman. What would normally happen, let's say I want to do a video and I want to use someone's music, could I use small parts of it? Or do I have to get permission no matter what I use it for? Well, the way this would normally work is that the creator of the video would take it to a lawyer and obtain preclearance. And the lawyer would analyze the video to determine whether or not a license for the music was required or not. In a very large number of cases, it's determined that no license is required because the use being made in the video is a fair use under the copyright law, and therefore does not constitute copyright infringement. Why do you think the Trump campaign just didn't get a license? I assume they obtained legal advice that they didn't have to. Quite frankly, that would be pretty good legal advice. Really? So what has the Trump campaign come back with in its response to the complaint? So the Trump campaign moved to dismiss the lawsuit which in the federal court system is a mechanism for an early termination with prejudice based on a failure of the complaint to state a legal claim for relief. You know, the basis of the motion to dismiss on the Trump campaign's part is exclusively the fair use doctrine. The fair use doctrine is a well-established legal principle under copyright law that's codified in the Copyright Act of 1976 that says there are instances in which a person may use a copyrighted work without permission because there are public policy reasons why we as a society need to allow such use. Here, it strikes me that the fair use doctrine is tailor-made for the defense of this lawsuit by the Trump campaign. If you look at the statute and the case law that has evolved around the fair use doctrine in the United States, a defendant would have to show four items are established to obtain a dismissal based on fair use. And those are that somehow the use of the copyrighted work was transformed 
by their own use. Second, that somehow the nature of the copyright at work deserved less protection. Third, that very little of the copyright at work was actually used. And fourth, that there is no impact or very little impact upon the market for the copyright at work. And the Trump campaign here has filed a motion in which it has argued that three of those four requirements for fair use are met under these facts, and therefore it's entitled to have the lawsuit dismissed with prejudice. The Electric Avenue, I believe, was 40 seconds out of a 55-second video. Does that matter? It matters a lot. The measurement you use for that prong of the fair use test is how much was used vis-a-vis the copyright at work. The copyright at work was over three minutes long, and about 40 seconds were used in this animated video by the Trump campaign. And in past cases, that level of usage has been held as a matter of law to be sufficiently limited to justify invocation of fair use doctrine. Grant's attorney says that the Trump campaign should have gotten a synchronization license to sync the music to the video. Is that a separate question? No, not necessarily. You only need a license if there is copyright infringement going on. So the fair use doctrine here, if the court finds it to be applicable, would give the Trump campaign a complete pass on this lawsuit. This lawsuit would go away. And the synchronization license issue, whether or not it's required or not required, probably would be required if there was copyright infringement. That would only come up if the plaintiff can get past this fair use defense. Terry, explain why the Trump campaign says this video was a transformative use of Electric Avenue. So, June, in the Second Circuit, that element of the fair use doctrine is often regarded as the most important element. And the Trump campaign takes it on in its motion to dismiss right up front, knowing what the law in the Second Circuit, which includes New York City, is. And they say that what they've done here with the song is taken a tiny portion of it and repurposed it for political purposes in an animated video that attacks the Biden candidacy. And the case for this being a transformative use as a legal matter is very strong. There are past instances in this court in which small portions of songs have been used in this way with pictures or video, and the court has held that that does indeed constitute a transformative use. Of particular importance here is the repurposing of the song from a popular entertainment media to a political use in the context of a specific campaign. And that is going to be a very strong argument for the Trump campaign that a fair use doctrine should apply here. It must frustrate the artists to have their work used even if it's transformed, to have it used in ways that they don't agree with or by people they don't agree with? Yes, it really does. I've represented many artists who come to me with that complaint, and it is a genuine, heartfelt concern that they express and should be respected. But you have to understand that in order to prevent the copyright act from being turned into some sort of mechanism for censoring speech, we have to allow at the margins for this sort of fair use. We cannot judge the fair use based on our politics or our morality or any other subjective criteria. We have to really focus on the fact that this furthers First Amendment rights by allowing such fair use.
Neil Young is also suing Trump's campaign for playing his songs Rockin' in the Free World and Devil's Sidewalk at rallies, saying he can't allow his music to be used as a theme song for a divisive un-American campaign. Is this also a copyright infringement lawsuit? Well, at its core, it is a copyright lawsuit, but it's really based on licensing law. This is not something that's new to this particular campaign cycle. Recording artists have complained about the use of their music for several decades now, specifically the use at rallies, live appearances by candidates, as well as in political commercials. And so it's not really something new. So Neil Young contends that at a Trump rally in June in Tulsa, Oklahoma, two of his songs were played apparently in their holes at the rally as part of hyping up the crowd and that the Trump campaign in doing that did not have a license to play the songs and did not have Neil Young's authorization to play the songs. Could the Trump campaign be operating under the theory that they have an ASCAP, a general license from ASCAP or BMI? So when Donald Trump first announced that he was running for president in 2015, his campaign, he took a license on the song that was played as he famously descended the escalator at Trump Tower to make the announcement. And the performer of that song complained. But the fact remained that it was not copyright infringement because the Trump campaign had obtained a license to perform the song in public and was therefore entitled to do so. And that's the problem typically with all of these recording artists bringing lawsuits against politicians. The way the business has worked since the 40s, 1940, is that recording artists, in order to obtain licensing revenues, give the licensing rights to one of several large licensing organizations, and they then go out and vigorously enforce the copyright laws against anybody playing that artist's music in public and generate quite a lot of revenue. What they will tell the world is that you don't need to get in trouble with us. You can come and get a blanket license to perform the music of all of our artists in our stable. And in that way, have protection from any copyright infringement lawsuits. And so many advertising agencies, many venues, particularly stadiums, will go out and obtain these blanket licenses. And in the complaint that Neil Young has brought against the Trump campaign, he goes out of his way to point out that although the venue where this Trump rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma took place did have a license, that under the terms of that license, a third party coming in and using the venue could not take advantage of the license. And therefore, the Trump campaign was unlicensed. And this is a common mistake that organizations coming in and renting a venue make, thinking that they're entitled to piggyback on the ASCAP license that the venue has. The venue has that license in order to play music during intermissions and as the crowd's coming in, but that does not give the third-party organization, in this case, Trump organization, the right to piggyback on it. They need it, arguably, to take their own license to play the Neil Young music, and Neil Young contends that they did not have such a license. Can an artist like Neil Young instruct ASCAP or BMI that he doesn't want his music licensed to the Trump campaign? So, June, that's a great question um, and the one and one that has not been resolved yet by the courts and, and has to be at some point. Uh, in the 1940s, um, the United States government brought antitrust lawsuits uh, against ASCAP and BMI 
saying that in effect they were monopolizing uh, the business of music because they uh, would pick and choose who they wanted to license to and in that way be able to drive up um, the prices uh, for the licensing. Um, the, rather than take that lawsuit through the courts, um, ASCAP BMI entered into what are called antitrust consent decrees. And under the terms of those decrees, which are still in effect uh, 80 years later, the, both of them are required to license any song or portfolio of songs upon request. They do not get to pick and choose. And therefore, if an artist took that position, it may very well expose ASCAP or BMI to antitrust considerations. There are artists who are now trying to do exactly that, and they will probably, in the long run, face some sort of legal consequences as they continue to insist on doing this, and it does threaten the very nature of these consent decrees. An artist who wants to um, be able to pick and choose who can license their works, and in particular to discriminate amongst political candidates or political campaigns, probably needs to take their songs out of ASAP and BMI and set up their own licensing um, uh, organizations. So the artist is, by the way, a very good defense here to the uh, for the Trump campaign um, to argue that. Uh, that Neil Young was not free under the antitrust laws and under that consent decree to um, deny them um, a license and could have limiting effect upon any damages or injunction that gets issued. Is there any case to be made that this implies a false endorsement by the artist to have their music played at a Trump rally? So that's an argument that you hear recording artists make all the time in this context, that somehow um, they are being pegged as supporting this candidate. It is a cause of action that only exists in a handful of states, and it would be a difficult one to make in this context. I think the American public is arguably sophisticated enough to understand that um, music gets used to sell all sorts of products, including candidates for office, and that does not necessarily imply an endorsement by the performing artist of whatever that product is, or in this case, a candidate. Um, so it, it would be a difficult cause of action to make, even in those states in which it is available as a cause of action. So it appears that the Eddie Grant lawsuit might be dismissed on a motion to dismiss before you really get into discovery and any kind of heavy litigation. But what about the Neil Young lawsuit? So, June, the motion to dismiss brought in the Eddie Grant case by the Trump Organization has a long pedigree in the in that federal court. It, it is regularly allowed because all you do is look at the face of the complaint and the facts as alleged by the copyright owner. And, and it's relatively easy to determine whether or not uh, the fair use doctrine has the factual predicates on the face of the complaint um, to be um, uh, considered at an early point in the case. And, and that's probably a good thing here for the Trump organization. I think that lawsuit's um, likely to be resolved relatively quickly without discovery. In contrast, the Neil Young lawsuit will turn on a lot of, of detail 
in the facts that are not evident on the face of the complaint and therefore going to require factual discovery and, and likely to be um, long and, and dragged out and may take as much as a few years to, uh, to decide if it isn't dropped in the interim given the results of the election. Thanks, Terry. That's Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The United States versus Google. It will be an epic antitrust court battle as the government tries to prove that Google illegally monopolized Internet search. It's just the beginning of what's expected to be a long battle, with the government having the burden of proving several elements to make out its case. Joining me is Sam Weinstein, a professor at Cardozo Law School and a former official in the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. First, the government has to prove that Google has monopoly power in a market, and it's laid out three markets. That's right. So the government is alleging three markets, right? So one is general search services, which is what we think of when we enter a, a search term into Google. And then a a search advertising market, which is a general market for search advertising, and something they call general search text advertising, which is the ads that show up on the top of your Google results page, right? The the sponsored ads above the organic, so-called organic results, right? So in the way these cases work is the government has to allege these markets and then show that they are indeed markets, right? And then that Google has monopoly power in these markets, right? Which would be something above a 75% share. And, you know, Google will contest these market definitions. They will say the markets are broader than the government is alleging, and Google wants them to be broader because then their share drops. And, you know, in particular in search advertising and general search text advertising, I, I imagine Google will push back hard that those are relevant markets, right? Google will say advertising dollars are distributed amongst things like billboards and podcasts and television, right? And that's the market, general advertising, not, not an internet, not a search-based advertising market. So then is it just the judge's decision what the market is? And for Google's monopoly share, is that easy to figure out? I mean, the numbers? So, right, it's a good question, right? So the, the, the fact finder, if it's in front of a judge or in front of a jury, will determine in the end what the market is. And, you know, if you say, for instance, let's say the market is general search. And I think that's an easier market for the government to prove. There's going to be data out there that economists will put together to say how many searches are done a year in the United States and how many of those go to Google. And that's Google's percentage of general search. So that's pretty straightforward. Advertising, I think also, if in fact, the finder of fact in the case agrees that the market is search advertising, an economist will come along and say, well, X number of dollars are spent on search advertising this year. And these are how many dollars went to Google. And here's Google's percentage. And that's how they would determine Google's percentage as, you know, above or below 75%. 75% is not a magic number, but the case law suggests you have to be above 75%. So, you know, the, the steps would be defining the relevant market first and then proving Google's share of that relevant market. Google earns 73% of search advertising revenue in the U.S., according to a 2019 report by eMarketer. If that number holds, does that mean that Google is not a monopoly in that market? The parties would fight about this, right? So there's no <laughs> hard and fast number. I use 75% as a shorthand because there is some case law saying, you know, above 75% probably is a monopoly share. 
but that's a moving target, right? So a judge or the jury will decide what the, probably the judge will decide what the appropriate legal standard is. But I think 75% is a good shorthand for monopoly power. So if the government can prove Google is a monopoly in at least one market, then it has to show that Google illegally keeps control of that market. And the suit focuses on the billions of dollars that Google pays each year to make sure its search engine is the default on mobile phones and web browsers. So any monopolization case, what we call Section 2 of the Sherman Act, has two parts. The plaintiffs, in this case the government, has a burden to prove two things. One is monopoly power, which we just talked about, right? So a, a certain share of a relevant market. And the second is some bad acts, some bad conduct that either allowed the defendant to acquire or to maintain the monopoly share. And this is a monopoly maintenance case. So the, the alleged bad conduct is a series of agreements that the government is saying Google uses to maintain its monopoly share, and it does so unlawfully. On their face, when you hear about those agreements, they sound like Google's locking in the market. So what could Google come back with as a legitimate reason for those? So, I mean, I think if I'm Google, let me just lay out a little bit what will happen on the, on the conduct side of the case. Right? The government has a burden to come forward with an allegation of anti-competitive conduct. And here we'll just say for shorthand, it's these various agreements like pre-installation agreements for the search engine revenue sharing agreements right, with the big phone manufacturers. So the government's going to allege that those are anti-competitive agreements, and Google can then attack the government's the anti-competitive theory, and Google will come back with its own pro-competitive explanations, right? So let's first talk about the government's theory. The government's theory is that these agreements lock in distribution for Google, lock out distribution for Google's rivals, right? Raise rivals' costs to try to get their search engines to consumers. So if I'm Google, I think the first thing I'm going to argue is, well, that's not really what's happening, right? That's not how consumers actually choose search engines. So to me, this case, and I think many people have made this observation, harkens back to the Microsoft case. In the Microsoft case, one of the allegations among many was that Microsoft had foreclosed distribution of rival internet browsers by locking up space on the hard drive of the OEMs, right? These, these people making computers. This is, looks similar, right? These agreements allegedly lock up space on the phone or on your computer. So what you see as a default is, is Google search engine. But Google's pretty straightforward counter-argument is you can switch anytime. If you don't like Google, it's a click away to do DuckDuckGo which I think is a pretty powerful argument. Now, it could be the government has alleged facts here when we don't see the backup for it that consumers don't switch, right? That once you see on your phone Google is the default, that you're not going to switch over to DuckDuckGo. But it does seem pretty easy, a lot easier than it was in the Microsoft case to switch. So that's one thing I'm going to say if I'm Google. The other thing I'm going to say if I'm Google, and this is before I even get to my pro-competitive justifications, is, hey, you know the reason why consumers use Google? It's because we're really, really good. It's true we have these agreements in place, but even if we didn't have them, consumers prefer us. That's probably a pretty persuasive argument. You know, you you have to see how it plays out, right? But the government has to draw a link between these agreements and Google's monopoly share, and Google can try to break that causation link by saying, we're just really good. So that's, if I'm Google, that's what I'm arguing to sort of overcome the the government's prima facie case, right? Their initial assertion that these agreements are anti-competitive. And then I'm going to say, okay, Court, if you don't buy that, I have pro-competitive justifications for these agreements. Right, so what could that be? You know, it's a little unclear, right? So this is, I think, a little harder for Google. What is pro-competitive about these agreements? Well, maybe it produces some certainty for them. Maybe it protects the Android operating system from being broken by third-party apps, right? You can imagine some explanations. It's a little harder for me to get there, uh, but we'll have to see what Google says. Explain what the rule of reason analysis is that the judge is going to use. Sure, it's a great question, right? So the, the rule of reason you know, you can think of it as a balancing test, right? And, but it's, it's done step by step. So 
first step is the government says, hey, this conduct you're doing, defendant, is anti-competitive. Here's why we think it's anti-competitive. And then the defendant gets to come back and say, nope, first of all, we're going to attack your assertions, government, that this is anti-competitive. And second, we're going to show that it's actually pro-competitive. And then if, if the defendant can come forth with some plausible pro-competitive justifications, it's in the third step, the judge will determine, will weigh the anti-competitive conduct against the pro-competitive justifications and come out one way or the other. So that's the theory behind the rule of reason, why we're weighing what's bad about the conduct against what's good about the conduct. In reality, that hardly ever happens. But in most <laughs> cases, the judge will say something like, all I see here is anti-competitive conduct. I don't see any pro-competitive justifications or vice versa, right? All I see here is pro-competitive good here, and I don't really see anything negative, right? And why? Because it's very hard to weigh, right? How do you weigh but essentially are apples and oranges. These are not measurable things, how much anti-competitive harm versus pro-competitive benefit, right? But that's the theory. That it's, a, it's a weighing test for the judge. It seems like the implication would be that it harmed competition then, but the government also has to show that it harmed consumers. I think you raised an interesting issue and a good point, right? So it's not enough for the government to allege that these distribution agreements harm Google's rivals. Antitrust law doesn't care about that. Antitrust law only cares about consumers. So the government has to have a theory for why, even if Google's rivals are being harmed, that that's bad for us, bad for consumers, right? And and there are a couple of theories in the case going to this point, right? So when we think about end users like you and me, what is harmful to us about these distribution agreements? Well, maybe we're getting less innovation, right? Maybe if these distribution agreements weren't in place, we'd see more DuckDuckGo's uh, who might protect our privacy better. We'd have more choice, right? That's the theory for consumer harm on the search side. On the advertising side, the consumer harm is clearer, right? If, if the government can prove that Google is unlawfully uh, maintaining its monopoly in, in search advertising or general search text advertising, if I'm an advertiser, my rates are going up and I'm getting less good service, right? That's just a, you know, a classic monopoly problem, right? If there were more competitors out there, advertising rates would fall, I'd pay less, I'd get better service, right? But, but in both cases, the government has to show not only that the rivals are being harmed, with that uh, consumers, either end users like you and me or advertisers are being harmed. How do they do that when Google is free to consumers? So how do they prove that consumers are harmed? Yeah, so end users like you and me, it's hard, right, for those, those reasons that you say. We, it's, it's, I'll put quotes around free. It's a quote free product. It's not really free, right, because you give Google your data. Um, but we're not paying cash, right? So it's difficult to, to prove that we're, you know, we're paying a monopoly price. For this service. So it's tricky, right? The government has to make a nuanced argument. And you can see in their claims what they're claiming is you and I are getting less good service, essentially a quality adjusted price that's lower than if there was more competition, right? So I'm not making this argument, but this is stipulate theoretically. Google doesn't do a good job protecting our privacy, right? So all their data, if there was more competition, there'd be less of that. Or our data would be valued more highly. We'd get money for it, right? That's the kind of nuanced argument you have to make for an end user. Again, for advertisers, it's a much clearer argument, right? If Google is the only game in town, and search advertising, I'm paying more if I'm an advertiser than I would if there were five competitors. Is Google's response just we're better, or is there a different response? Yeah, I mean, so Google's got a bunch of entry points here for their arguments. One is we're just better. So the distribution agreements, there's no causation here with our monopoly position. We have a monopoly position because we have the best product. It's not a bad argument. And I think a lot of people would agree, right, that they have the best search engine. So that's, that's one argument. Another argument that if I'm Google I'm making is as to consumers like you and me, end users, we're not really being harmed. That there is choice. You and I could easily switch to DuckDuckGo or to Bing. You and I aren't tied by any agreements. We can do whatever we want. So if we really like those other search engines, we could easily switch. 
So that's two arguments I'm making if I'm Google. It's a little tougher in the, in the advertising side, right, where the advertisers are paying in money. And, there's, you know, we haven't seen the evidence yet, but if, I'm sure the government will have an economist come and say, look, advertisers are paying a lot more money than they would in a competitive market. Right? That's, that's harder to attack. So if I'm Google, my argument there is going to be based on, hey, you've, you've defined the market wrong. That in fact, advertising is a market that includes television and billboards and you know what's on the subway and, and podcasts, right? And, and, and in that market, we have a very small share. Do you see one side or the other having an advantage here where it looks like their side is stronger? So it's a little bit hard to say without seeing more evidence. The government, I think, has a, certainly a plausible theory here, particularly in search. So I think it's, we're playing out the government's case here in search. It's pretty clear or maybe not diff- that difficult to prove that Google has a monopoly position in search. And these agreements, as you said, sort of on their face look bad. Google's paying a lot of money to Apple and to you know, Android manufacturers to make them the exclusive search engine. And you ask, why are they paying all that money? What are they getting for that? So I, I think that the government has put together you know, sort of a plausible case on search. Search advertising is a little harder, uh, I think, just because of the market definition issue. You know, what is the market there? What is what is Google share? But if the government could prove that the share is, is big and that the market is narrow, then the government might have a strong case there, too. So I would say the, the government's case is certainly plausible, right? Google has some arrows in its quiver, though. And I think what we were talking about before, that they will, will fight on market definition as to advertising. But, you know, as to search, they're going to fight about are consumers harmed, right? And again, I would come back to this argument that they will certainly make which is you and I can choose whatever search engine we want. We're not being harmed. We choose Google for the most part because we like it better. What remedies is the government seeking if it wins the case? It does seek remedies right at the end of the complaint. So the government says that it wants to enjoin these practices, these alleged anti-competitive practices, which are the distribution agreements and pre-installation agreements and revenue sharing agreements. And then they ask for this catch-all, which you often see or maybe always see in the interest stage, which is please enter any other preliminary relief or permanent relief that's appropriate to restore competition in these markets, right? So we're asking for, we the government are asking for injunctions on the conduct that we've laid out here that's bad. And then we want anything else you can give us that will restore competition. And they also say, the government does, we ask you court to enter structural relief as needed to cure any any competitive harm. So structural relief is generally breaking up a company in some way or another, right? So spinning off a portion of the company. Now, that's interesting that that's in there, this prayer for structural relief. And there's a couple ways you could look at that. One is they have it, the government has it in there just in case, right? Just in case the, the judge is so inclined. Or that they have some other theory coming where they're going to tie the bad conduct to a theory in which the only way to fix that bad conduct is to break up Google. Now, I don't see anything in this complaint that gets you from A to B, right? Get you from the bad acts to breaking up Google. Nonetheless, it's there in the in the request for relief. But at this point, I wouldn't take that too seriously. You know, I think the standard response to a case, a remedial response to a case like this is to enjoin the practices, right? To say, stop. The court will order the, the defendant to stop doing what they were doing. Now, I, I should just point out here that the government can't ask for money. In an antitrust case brought by the government, a civil case, what all the government can get is some kind of injunctive relief or structural relief or conduct relief, right? essentially stop what you're doing or we're going to break you up, something like that. They can't get money. But what can happen is if, for instance, the government wins, you know, the court says, we believe your theory, uh, we think the government's right, that private parties will follow on and bring their own lawsuits asking for monetary relief, right? But in this case, there'll be no monetary relief. So in the government's case, the standard is we want an injunction. We want an injunction against the bad conduct. And that, that would seem to me 
appear to be the appropriate relief that the government's able to put this case. I mean, a settlement is always a possibility, but is it likely here a settlement as this case goes on and on? So it's always hard to say, right, what the parties are thinking. And, you know, often it depends on how the case appears to be going. Right. But sure, you know, many, many NHS cases settle. Very, very few go to trial. Right. So, you know, if Google decides at some point this isn't worth it to us, we're getting too much bad PR, we'll just end these practices. We, we believe in our product. I could see that happening. Right. We, we believe we'll keep share because we're so good. You could see that happening. That would be a settlement here that might end the case. Uh, but I just don't think we'll know. Uh, for some time, whether whether the parties are willing to settle. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Sam Weinstein, a professor at Cardozo Law School. That's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.